Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together visionaries, scientists, healers, artists, and seekers. I'm so grateful that I get to interview these extraordinary thought leaders and share their wisdom with you. And I love listening to the conversations that are led by my co-host and dear friend, Cleo Wade. Cleo is a beautiful poet and author. I deeply admire her and the way she keeps her heart open to the world. Together, we believe that engaging in open-minded, honest, and sometimes difficult conversations has the power to change our lives. All right, over to Cleo. Hi, this is Cleo Wade, co-host of The Goop Podcast. Today's guest is my very best friend, and I am so lucky that she said yes to being my first ever guest here on the pod. Sade Lithcott is the CEO of the National Black Theater in New York. It was founded in 1968 in Harlem by her mother, the legendary Dr. Barbara Ann Tier. Sade's mother and Sade are two people I have long admired, not only for the women they are, but for the mission they embody. As Sade will tell you in this episode, she comes from a long lineage of movement makers And that is where our conversation begins. We talk about ways that she has alchemized grief into purpose and what it's like for her to continue her mother's dream and legacy. Shade explains how grief has pushed her to harness her courage. She also talks about the root of courage, the power of art, theater, community, and storytelling. She tells us a little of how Being honest and owning our unapologetic truth can be a profound tool for self-nourishment. I am constantly learning from Sade, her beautiful words and her wisdom. This conversation is exactly what I hoped my first pod would be. I'm so grateful. So let's get to it. I feel very lucky that my best friend is joining me. I really wanted the conversations that I have on this pod to be ones that I could 
feel we learned through intimacy and these really intimate conversations. And there's so much wisdom and knowledge. I feel that I get to learn every day from my closest girlfriends. And so I do feel that, yes, sometimes we're learning from the person that's very far away. And then sometimes we're really learning from the person whose arm we have linked in with. So Shade Lithcott, thank you so much for joining me on my first ever pod. Yay! It's such an honor to be your very first pod guest, Clee. What I want to do, because I really love this, I think that there's this amazing power of people claiming and reclaiming their story when they're asked tell me a little bit about your life or can you kind of give me your life in a timeline? And so I would love for you to share with us your kind of bio according to you. You were born and raised in New York City. Yep. Born and raised in Harlem, New York City to two artists, radical artists. My mother is the founder of the National Black Theater And my father was a photographer turned actor. And, you know, I was born into a radically free Black space that was committed to the evolution of our community and people through the theater arts. And so my worldview really has always been steeped in being free and how to get other people free. And that's translated professionally for the last almost 15 years as being the current CEO of the National Black Theater, which is, when I tell you, a tremendous privilege and honor to be helming the oldest Black theater in New York and one of the longest theaters in the country helmed and continually helmed by a woman of color. There's two things you just said that are so incredible, which is that you're the longest run black owned theater in the city. And one of the longest running theaters in the country run by women of color because of that, those two things, I know that you must consistently walk into rooms being the only person who looks like you. Mm. And I think in a post or during, or I I'm not sure where we are in, in a lot of our movements right now, but you know, after a Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter. I think sometimes we think that because there's a lot of visible work having been done as a result of these movements, that behind closed doors, things look the way they might look on a TV show or in a movie. And so how do you walk into these rooms? Because I do think that people are in their day-to-day lives moving through that where they are the only woman in the space, the only person of color in the space, the only person of their identity or orientation in the space. What is that like to work in that probably I'm sure daily? And how do you, I guess, cultivate the confidence and bravery to consistently do it so that you can push forward your institution? I think for me, I love the word courage because, you know, the root of that word is core, the heart. Mm. It is, um, courage is one, a faculty that is a fundamental tool is that in every space, we have to harness our courage. That heart space is actually a courageous space. And so I walk into rooms 
rooted in courage and rooted in the knowledge that none of us are ever alone. And I say this because what I am clear that any one of us has the opportunity on a daily basis when we walk into any room is to support completing the sentence of our ancestors' unfinished sentence, thought, or dream. And so we're never alone because we're always standing on the shoulders of generations of ancestors who weren't able to complete their sentence that we get the privilege to do. And so, you know, between, you know, harnessing the courage and being really rooted in the clarity that we are never alone and that who's with us is rooting for us, right? Like they literally are our roots and they are rooting for our liberation through whatever our form of expression is. So I never feel alone. I actually feel like it is the ultimate party that I get to walk in. The bigger the room, the more intimidating the opportunity, the more of like, we're doing this y'all, you know? So it yeah. feels joy-filled to be stepping into spaces that weren't necessarily kind of codified for being as black as I am, as much of a woman as I am, it's an opportunity to introduce everybody to my ancestors. So I'm always like very psyched. I love that. And the world does not tell us this. And, and I think maybe on purpose, because I think if every time you were the only person who looked like you who walked and walked into a room and felt that you have this kind of energetic surrounding of all who came before you and all who want you to complete, finish, or extend a dream, people would be loose in the world with courage. We would be all over the place. And so what I wonder is, is this the teachings of your mother? I'm obviously a longtime fan of your mother's work and her writing and her speaking and her performing and her producing, even the way that she chose to move through the world and create in the world is so singular. Would you say that this idea kind of stems from her being your mother? Is this, is this her? We are all our mother's children. So, so much of how I see my worldview, it has been shaped by my mom, who was Dr. Barbara Antier, a woman who coined a artistic practice called ritual theater making. And so, so much of my business practice or my life practice has been geared around ritual, which is as old as time for Black women in particular. So it is like singularly my mother and it is universally Black women since the beginning of time, creating and holding space, making ways out of no way, creating and nurturing the energy of the possibility of tomorrow. I mean, I think Black women from day one have always taken the word impossible and like imbued it with I'm possible, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's that dichotomy that I was raised in that absolutely was my mother's testimony and lives through me in a contemporary lens as I translate the world through my work. And we hear that in the Beyonce album. Yes. Yeah, that was the shock of the week or so I want to tell you the story is that when Beyonce's album came out the most recent one and Renaissance. when Renaissance comes out and the whole world erupts because Beyonce has made this beautiful mesmerizing disco album and I'm listening to it 
of course, the day it comes out, I am a part of the hive and I hear your mother, one of your mother's most famous speeches. I mean, it was kind of a talk she was giving is the context of which I've heard it and understand it and, and actually listened to it again recently. And it is so amazing. I mean, I wish Beyonce would have, I wish you would have just wrote it out to the end because the part where she tells us to learn to love ourselves really, mm-hmm. oh, it kills me. But your mom is all of a sudden in Alien Superstar. This is not the point of this conversation at all, but as a fan of your mother and Beyonce, both equally, can you give me a little breakdown? You know, what happens? Does, does Beyonce's team call you and say your mom is on her new album? Kind of. No. So the funniest thing is, so the great Beyonce sampled my mom, Dr. Barbara Ann Tears, a long form interview that she did in the late seventies on black theater. And it is a part of the Smithsonian's archive and kind of lives on YouTube as a long form 20 minute interview. And the interview was supposed to be about theater. And my mother takes 20 minutes to tell how theater or the, the, the vehicle of storytelling is a vehicle that teaches us how to learn to love ourselves more. And it's kind of one of those B-sides that lives in the internet and like, you know, is you would really be hard pressed to discover it. And Beyonce did. So every so often, you know, scholars find it or they quote, her for different books and the Smithsonian will get in touch with us to see if it's okay if, you know, they license the interview to an outlet, but it's usually very academic. And then this one time we got a call from the Smithsonian folkways that were like, we can't reveal very much. It's time sensitive. And can you get on the phone? And I do have to say that the people from Ivy Park approached sampling Dr. Tears' words with so much diligence and care. And the thing that was so kind of ironic, and and I know this is not what we came to talk about, is, you know, my godmother was Maya Angelou. And so this song, that verse that leads into my mom's sample was really like, we were talking about rituals and ancestors. It it, it slices together a Maya Angelou poem, a phenomenal woman. Mm-hmm. It takes pieces from Maya's eulogy of my mother upon her passing and then drops in the sample. And so when I say that Black women, you know, generations past and generations to come are mistresses of ceremony of holding space for our healing and pathways forward the culmination of that sample and that song was all of that you know and so it was the biggest honor it also it freaks me out walking down the street and just hear my mom's voice bumping out of cars I imagine it's kind of a ultra version of finding an old letter from your mother or something like as someone who I turn to whenever a friend of mine is moving through grief, I always ask you, once I had a friend move through really tragic grief almost two years ago, and you were my first call, you know, what do I say? Can you talk to me a little bit about how you move through the grief with losing your mother? And then also what it feels like to have her voice surround you kind of culturally for six months. And now we're, this album is about to tour and your mother's voice is going to be in stadiums all over the world on a loudspeaker. What is that feeling? I'm just curious because we've never talked about that. It feels like divine guidance. You know, it's Mm. the breadcrumbs of your life that point you into the right direction. 
I have been blessed with an innate ability to listen actively to the world around me. And that world around me is both visible and invisible. So when things like this happen, it's actually like the breadcrumbs that point me in the direction of where I'm supposed to be doing, right? It's that sign. Mm. It's that gut intuition that says, keep on going, right? Like the work that you're doing or the life that you're building, the gifts that you're sharing are resonating. And they're not just resonating here from the kind of tangible space of labor, but they're resonating with your ancestors in a long lineage of movement makers. And I think if anything, we are all work in the continuum of something and life is constantly pointing us into a direction or sprinkling breadcrumbs, you know, for better or for worse of where we're headed. And so when you get that kind of a validation, you understand it, it helps to soothe the grief because it is righteous. You know, when your grief turns into a conscious, righteous calling, it serves you in ways that you're clear about. And I think that that's what the Beyonce sample was. Like all of a sudden my grief was incredibly righteous and in service of someone else's grief or love or whatever you are taking from it. And that's the beauty of art, right? It holds a mirror up to both like your beauty and your pain. And it grabs you by the heart and hand and says, we can turn this into something beautiful. And so that's what it was for me. It was really this alchemy of my grief into something productive and beautiful and of service to others. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless high quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to NordicKnots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It's incredible how service has this power to alchemize pain into something purposeful. I, I do think that whenever we are taking the hardest things that have happened to us and turning it in somehow to an offering to help others or any part of our lives. And friendships are like that too. When, when your friendship is a relationship rooted in 
offerings, service, selflessness, you see the the kind of fruits of the of those types of seeds are so sweet. And and it's also interesting because I think that a lot of the times we we often talk about being on our ancestors shoulders. And I think also these people that came before us are kind of whispering in our ears. And it's really interesting when their whisper becomes louder and louder, because it is, I, it it is a guidance. And I think, and, and can also be an affirmation. I was also saying this to someone earlier today, what you constantly remind me of is we typically look at Black history is something that has happened before our time. And we don't think of Black history as something that is being made right in front of us in our communities and and you can't really believe it and, and and at the around the time of this your your mother kind of claiming it affirmation in your right before your eyes in front of the world in this really big way you were i think maybe more in the midst of not in the beginning stages of but producing creating bringing to the world bringing to this the masses this history making play that you've discovered in a way, right? And produced called Fat Ham, which is coming to Broadway April 12th. We are in previews right now, but in previews. Yeah. Oh my God, I can't believe April it. April 12th. Yeah. So Fat Ham is it's a Pulitzer sure. winning play. And I said this to you earlier, I fell in love with the theater because of you and, and because I know it, but I'm not the theater person. I wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna bring Sade on the pod as my first guest, because I think everyone loves the theater. (laughs) Like, I know that the theater is a hard place to get to. And I know that it's not in all of the communities. You and your mother really made a point to put theater in community, in the center of Harlem, in Black space. But I didn't, you know, grow up going to see plays or theater in that way. And so I, everything I know about theater, I know because I know you and it really, and, 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 in the history of how your mom really transformed theater is what made me really love the art form when it's done in the kind of specific way that the national black theater does, does theater. And so I'd love for you to kind of walk us through theater, what the theater does and then how you discover or create the space for a playwright to come into the world and then win a Pulitzer and go to Broadway? Well, I can't take responsibility for all of that. I will say, you know, theater for me is the most powerful, one of the most powerful mediums on the face of the earth because stories are the most powerful medium on the earth. Storytelling really at its heart is a conjuring of our biggest hopes and heartbreaks. It humanizes all of who sits in front of it and relates to story. So storytelling is so powerful because you can change the hearts and minds of the world through the way people are represented on stage and how, you know, those stories are told. And so for us at National Black Theater, we use the medium of storytelling to shift and change the worldview and the perception of Black culture in the most radical, unapologetically creative way because it's the truth of our experience as opposed to the media's interpretation of what our life and lifestyles are. And so our work, as much as it's about theater, 
our work is about right-sizing our own humanity, like reclaiming our stories, reclaiming our narrative, making space for us to be whole and holy. And so Fat Ham is written by James Iams, who won the Pulitzer for this incredible play directed by Sahim Ali. And they're amazing, amazing James. I love him. Amazing artists. They actually met almost a decade ago at National Black Theater when we oh uh, produced a world premiere show that James wrote called Kill Move Paradise. It was a powerful show. And actually, I think James said the other day, one of his most produced plays is this wild play that meets these five young African-American men at the moment their lives were taken from them by state violence. And the whole play takes place in purgatory. And the play was so powerful because in the emergence of Black Lives Matter and the controversy, if there is any controversy where there shouldn't be, around Black Lives Matter as a movement where the humanity of Black folks gets transformed into hashtags that, you know, in their memory also strip us of our humanity. MBT thought the show to produce was this one, this one that gives the life and the wholeness back to the characters and says, even in the face of so much tragedy and trauma that we can still be in pursuit of Black joy because any one of these young boys whose lives were stolen or taken are remembered by the most traumatic moment and not the trail of joy that they left in their loved ones throughout their life. And so that was the story we wanted to tell that season that brought these artists together. And fast forward last year, James Sahim, National Black Theater and the Public Theater got together and produced the New York premiere of Fat Ham, which is a Black, Southern, queer, loose adaptation of Hamlet, thus Fat Ham. So amazing. It's the first time I've ever left a play that has anything to do with Shakespeare and been elated with joy. (laughs) I think all of our friends went to see it. We just were... Hi. I mean, I felt as if I'd had three shots of tequila and was dancing on a table. I was flying high, leaving. And that was the experience of everyone I know who saw this play. Uh, Well, that means so much to us because, you know, here's where the resistance comes in, right? So the righteous grief is that during the endemic where you know african american people especially in rural environments have some have lost one or both of their parents where legislation is being passed where you can't say gay or drag story time is being banned like the antidote to all of that erasure all of what we see the pendulum as moving backwards is art and if we in these moments of darkness can talk about it and then infuse it with joy and laughter, which is so disarming that it becomes the revolution, that it becomes the resistance. And you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with people who may not believe what you believe, 
may ascribe to these legislations, may ascribe to not having been exposed to some of the, the richness of our culture, are disarmed with like joy and laughter, but we're tackling and we're saying gay when it's being legislated against. I think it was like, it's the perfect play because it gives you an escape hatch from how heavy the world can be, but it's also pushing you to think outside of our little boxes and bubbles and boundaries to see the world more holy with a place at the table for each and every one of us. And I always find that like, the more specific in art you can be, the more universal the message is, that's the science and secret to soul. That is the science and secret to art that resonates past genre or race or color or gender or sexual orientation. And so Fat Ham, not only is just, I think people have a great time, but it's really the kind of art that we all need to be making and seeing and telling folks about. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It's also interesting because you said earlier that art has this power to change hearts and minds. And if you can change a heart and a mind, that's also how you change policy. I mean, this is how we change these laws. I don't know a single person who doesn't feel oppressed or disgusted or upset or a myriad of almost tied down emotions, unfree feelings with the legislation where we are all currently living in and around that is kind of, you know, popping up, whether it's the book banning or the language restriction and living in the midst of a constant flow of gun violence. And I think you really tap into something because I think sometimes people are like, just go to the hill, screw art. And your mother, especially someone who founded the theater, you know, on the heels of what, what, what year did they just, did she found the theater? 1968. 1968. If you look through the history of America, you will find a million books just about the year 1968. They call it the year that disrupted the world. It is one of the most critical points in, in, in our history, especially in race relations and class relations, everything. What do you say as someone who's, you know, you're building a new, on the foundation of your mother, ideas of the theater, you're building a new theater, you're bringing plays outside of the walls of the theater. Historically, there hasn't been a 
a, a play that originated with a Black theater house on Broadway since, what, 1978 for Colored Girls, right? I think as someone who I've always turned to as someone who's such a profound activist in in New York City and in, in the United States in general, you've traveled the world actually talking about Black liberation and, 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 our, and the shared and community liberation found in your practices around Black liberation and freedom. I guess this is a big question, but how are we changing the world with our art today? And how can, how can we, how can anybody? I would say the most profound weapon that we have in our toolbox, our arsenal, is to tell your unapologetic truth. The truth of our lives is what will set us free. Not the perception of our lives, not the, you know, like Black folks have spent their lives contorting to the shape of the white gaze. And and we've been bent over in the, the lens of what is supposed to be so long that sometimes, you know, you need spaces and places and art that remind you of how strong your spine actually is and how long and beautiful your spine is. The thing about art is that it is the antidote to everything. It translates culture, ethnicity, country, gender. It is the greatest equalizer. And it is an invitation to our softness and an exit from survival. The artist's role in our society is to hold up a mirror to our souls. And that is past the spin of like a news cycle. My mom used to always say, the science and secret of soul will, is the vibratory frequency of, of change. She said, you can go to anywhere in the world and someone puts on a James Brown record. And when you hear James Brown go on a good foot, like <laughs> people lose their minds. They cannot not dance. You see those concerts of the Beatles where does it matter what community the Beatles are playing for? People are throwing, you know, their bras on stage or their like, you know, flowers on stage. And it's because that vibratory frequency is one that resonates so universally within each and every one of us that we start feeling, moving, seeing, appreciating everything differently and as one. And so it is really the alchemy of wholeness is what like art does. It asks the provocative questions and it posits what an answer might be as interpreted through the artist. But that gives you the opportunity and the invitation to do the same in your own lives. And when you are free, your freedom is an invitation for other people to get free. That's why it's so contagious. It's not about the articulation of our own singular freedom. It is the invitation, that viral like moment of being like, if I could feel this free, I wanna share that feeling with someone else. And so that was kind of my mom's whole reason and purpose for founding a theater is to, to show and to build theaters of the future 
that are rooted in Black liberation in service of human transformation. And I believe great theater can and does transform the world. And Fat Ham is a really beautiful example of doing that right now on Broadway. And it's making history because it's the first time a Black theater has done it in multiple generations that our purview, our particular kind of art and care of our artists, of our storytelling, of our audience and community, make it to the biggest stage on the globe, which is Broadway. And I think that, you, you know, knock on wood, it will resonate with audience because housed in this piece is the science and secret of soul. And, and part of why you've been producing in spaces other than the theater is because you are currently in construction to create your dream. And it's, it's really interesting because when you and I talk about this, I, I always hesitate to say that you're continuing your mother's dream, but almost you found a, you found your dream within your mother's dream that kind of merged the two, I think, into this space. Can you tell me a little bit about a I hate to say the word demolishing, but, you know, taking down or rebuilding your theater from the ground up. How long will it take? So we're in the middle of a capital redevelopment project that will rebuild the National Black Theater and we'll move back into our space in 2026. We're building the theater of the future, the one where, you know, you hear so much about all of these movements, white American theater, we see you, you know, folks really raging against the machine and saying, we deserve a seat at the table. Well, we're building the theater of the future and that table will be built fresh. It will be built new. We are disinterested in having seats at tables that were never made for us to exist in our wholeness. And the theater of the future is about everybody pulling up a collective chair to a table that has been set by this idea of freedom. You know, this incredible tablescape that, that says the theory of change is that Black liberation plus art plus placemaking equals the conditions for human transformation. Mm-hmm. That what we're inviting folks in the theater of the future is to have love affair with themselves, as my mom would say, have a love affair with yourself and learn to love yourself through the narratives of Black artists who are telling their unapologetic truth of their lives and their conditions. The theater of the future is one that, you know, we produce, we develop work. We have these incredible artists in residency from playwrights, directors, and producers, because what we're acutely interested in is being subversive and not you know, taking on the American theater canon, but creating our own canon, right? It's like creating something so fresh in all of the ways, colloquial, like new, like the freshest art that Broadway has to come to us, you know, which is what's happened with that hand, that the truth of our lives is the truth of all of our humanity. And so the theater of the future is really, really exciting. You know, in 1983, my mother, uh, National Black Theater was renting space in an old jewelry factory and it burned down in 83, which gave Dr. Tier this incredible opportunity to buy 
the block. And so, you know, people said she was crazy. And that was my mom's favorite thing because she was like, call me crazy and I'll show you how I make the impossible possible. And so she said, no, I'm not gonna buy the building. I'm gonna buy the block. And in 1986, she bought the city block. And because she wanted to create an ecosystem, a safe space for Black artists to live, work, and serve. And so, you know, fast forward all of these years on the most famous address in the world, Fifth Avenue and 125th Street. You go anywhere in the world, say Fifth Avenue, everybody knows New York City, Museum, Mile, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and you say 125th Street, and everyone knows Harlem, cultural capital of the Black world. So she bought the intersection of the two, and now we get the tremendous opportunity to build a temple of liberation, to build the theater of the future on that block. And so we're really excited for all of the artists we get to support, but we're really excited for our community who get to see themselves reflected back at the highest vibratory frequency. And then for the world to open our doors to the world to have this conversation about their own freedom and their own liberation. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Something I always think with being an artist, people often feel that it's a club that they're not invited into people. I always hear people say, well, I'm not an artist or, but I feel truly in my soul that every single person is a creative and Mm -hmm. creativity is the language and energy of art. So in that there's artfulness at the very least, you know, even if you don't want to claim artists, you can claim that you are art and artful and life, all of this life happening and creating itself around you constantly. And within you, you know, every cell of your being is recreating and recreating all day long. I want to say this, especially because in our conversation today, we've talked so much about the artists. And I do feel that even when you say that you don't mean it has to be the artist on the stage or the actor or the painter. I think that you view every person as an artist as well, because I feel that or felt that going to the theater when I was 20 before I thought I was an artist. And I remember going there and feeling closer and closer and closer to the truth that I, even though I hadn't figured out my medium, and for some people that could just be a conversation with a friend, I mean, for me, for a long time, it was my medium for my art were conversations with my girlfriends like you that later became my books. <laughs> and so do you feel that everyone is an artist and creative and so therefore has this power to create change that you speak of? 
Oh my gosh, what a beautiful question and a beautiful offering. Absolutely, everyone's an artist. You know who I think are the most profound, undeclared artists? Or is anyone who makes a budget? <laughs> I think like- Totally. I always said people who create spreadsheets, I'm like, you guys are freaking G's. Oh my God. Really? I mean, that is how profound. I absolutely believe everyone is an artist. I believe the people who make budgets are the most like impactful story. You got skills. (laughs) And you're telling a story like that is the thing, right? Like budgets are moral documents. Budgets tell stories. Budgets actually see what our values are when our words fail us or when our words say one thing. That artist created that spreadsheet is actually telling you the truth of your life. And and the people who create the budgets are oftentimes the only honest person in the room. That part. That's also an incredibly powerful, profound analogy to think that our budgets, for example, are these testimonies to what we actually value as opposed to what our branding purports to value. And so how do we introduce this language of creativity and artistry in all that we do to harness the the, the power and the alchemy that we've been talking about earlier? You know, at National Black Theater, we've coined something called holistic producing, which you have participated in so many ways which is that, you know, we choose what we think is a brilliant piece of art. We don't ask our playwright to be, you know, political in any kind of way. We just produce it with great artistic rigor, but they know if MBT is producing it, that we're going to tease out a social impact theme that exists in the world of the play. We turn that into a dramaturgical lobby exhibit that really are the kitchen table, coffee table Mm -hmm. combos that we're having in our own house because, as a child who had multiple learning disabilities, the subjects that I did well at were the things, the subjects I did well at in school were the things that like I understood or I cared about or I could apply to my life. So we create in community these dramaturgical lobby exhibits that are tackling these social impact issues that we're talking about. And then at the end of every show, and this is where the art gets handed over to the audience, we do a talk back and afterwards after every single show where we ask the audience before you leave this hollowed house and you have that drink of wine and you digest with the person you know the best, could we digest together as community? Can we turn over this creative evening that you've had with the lobby exhibit and the work and say, can we together make a new piece of art, which is called digestion? And in that moment, I think it's when our audience softens even more and realizes that this whole experience, or as my mother would say, experiment was made to bring us into our own creative practice of loving and understanding ourselves and each other better. And that all of a sudden, the stranger that you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with for two hours is someone that you can relate to that you might go and grab that glass of wine with them or they said something so profound that it triggered something in you that was liberatory so i absolutely believe that everyone is an artist or has creative production within 
their cellular memory. And all of us just need to tap into the creative ways in which we express ourselves into the world from the page to the stage, to the boardroom, to the budget, you know? I've heard you say the word, or even almost, it's almost a phrase the way you say it, that we just need to be unapologetically honest Mm. a few times during our conversation. And is that so hard? I mean, that feels (laughs) really hard. I, 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 even as someone who speaks up and writes for a living, I find it really hard to have these confrontations where you just say the most honest possible thing, though I have benefited so deeply in my life by looking, I I've always said, this is that when I was before I put my first book into the world, I really did this kind of exercise of looking at my life and my past with the most honest possible eyes because I knew that if I was going to put something out in the public, that would be an extension of me. It needed to be an honest extension of me. And I didn't want to assess or write from a place of dishonesty. And it would always be dishonest if I was unwilling to look at my childhood with honest eyes and look at my adulthood with honest eyes and look at myself and my decisions and and my own growth and evolution and the parts that I hated about myself and grew out of and still heal from. And, 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 but even in that, even in, in the living with the benefits of a constant, you know, value rooted in approaching life through the most honest possible lens, I find it really hard to be honest and, or just unapologetically honest in conversation to just say the thing, you know, whether it's because you're worried about someone's feelings or how they're looking at you or how they're, you know, all the things that we all go through where we feel really insecure about just speaking our truth, which we hear also in society all the time, right? Speak your truth, just say it. And you're like, okay, but it's really hard when you feel that your truth might create, you know, shake the situation or create fracture but all, we also know that when we don't speak it, you know, that's why we, you know, I think it makes us feel ill and, and I don't mean that like a scientific way, but I, I just sometimes feel like I feel the relief physically. Once I have said the unsaid things, it's like when you have a good cry and you're like, wow, I didn't realize how much tension I was holding. And when I released it, I realized how much dis-ease I had. Would you say that this unapologetic or being unapologetically honest is what would we could we call that self care? Well, it's definitely power, right? People will cheat you out of your truth all day and night. Oh, and, I hate that! I hate that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I feel like not enough people talk about grief—the grief that comes from choosing your power, right? Like, oh my God, that your power to walk away from certain things that are not feeding you, your power to create healthy and loving boundaries, that there's real grief in that because the world contorts differently to your truth. And that means that you will lose things, but you will not lose anything that wasn't worth falling away. Mm. But that is lonely. 
and it's no scary. one. It's really and scary. scary. It's scary and to lose things, not seeing what's on the way to come into that space. Because a lot of the times when you're shedding, you know, you shed behind you, and you you can't see what's coming towards you yet. Exactly. You can't see what's coming towards you. You don't realize that the falling away of things is actually like the deepest honoring of the core of who you are is the recognition of your ancestors and the conjuring of generations to come. You can't see any of that in the darkness. And yet we are all born in the dark right? Our dreams are come to fruition when we close our eyes. And when we're in the dark, we have to trust the darkness and the silence of becoming. And so we become in the dark in the womb, as you you said that to me. Yeah, that is exactly it. And so this fear or this grief from being in the darkness too long to combat fear, you need courage which means you need your full heart and your full heart will guide you not out of the dark, but through the dark and will be the compass for your grief to see what deeply honors the gifts that you were born to bring uniquely into the world. And I think that it also is a gift to be able to give to other people that this unapologetic truth is called intuition. You know, some people call it intuition. Mm -hmm. And that unapologetic truth are your guardian angels leading you forward, even through the darkness, to what you ultimately deserve in your life. And that's, I think, what we want for ourselves, like for your girls, for Thelonious, and ultimately like what we want for our neighbors and our community, because we can't do it alone. We can't do it in isolation. We can only do it in community. We can only walk each other home, you know? And so in a way that's really what MBT does. It's a home away from home. And it's a place that we hope many generations of people can walk their friends and their family and their community home into a space that recognizes their full wholeness in all that their stories have to offer. Ashe. Ashe. I want to thank you so much. I really needed to hear this today. I think the world we're living in is so hard. And I think after the past few years, we're so deeply confronted with what is unhealed within us or what we're still trying to heal within us. And I do think that unapologetic honesty and courage are the things that we, if we hold on to, we make it through and we make it through together. So thank you for your wisdom. I love you so much. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to my conversation with Shadi Lithcott. Being her friend is an honor and a gift. I hope you will find this woman and her work as inspiring as I do. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thank you for listening to the Goop Podcast.